0: This evening I'd like to uh, talk about one half of our theme. If you Remember our theme is uh, around awakening wisdom and compassion. And so the particular focus this evening is on a, a wise understanding. Um, but of course these two things can't really be separated. I mean they're spoken about as uh, two wings of a, of a bird. And certainly whenever I think of wisdom... Um, it has this quality in it of uh, a sense of care and concern, a sense of ethical response within it. Uh, and also compassion. You know, compassion also is a quality that sees clearly. Yeah? So these are two, I mean, I would in many ways see them as different aspects of something, rather than, you know, there's wisdom over here and compassion over there. But, certainly, for the purpose of this talk, we can focus a little more on the wise understanding. And wisdom, of course, is uh, something that's quite different from cleverness or intelligence or uh, just a, an intellectual or theoretical understanding. You know, wisdom is something that's really lived. And uh, sometimes in, in my studies of ethics and when I looked into that in great detail. People sometimes go to great lengths to try and work out certain formulas for the right thing to do. And somebody says, ah, it's the greatest happiness for the greatest number. And then very clever people come up with certain examples where if you do that, it leads to something that most of us would see as being unethical. (coughs) And someone else says, no, it's all about duty, or it's all about love, or uh, some other quality. But then there's also this tradition that says actually, wisdom is by its very nature something that we can't really pin down. It's not something that we can say, that's it, there's wisdom. I've got it, it's on my shelf. Got the certificate, you know, ticked all the boxes. It's something quite lived, something quite moment to moment, um, and something that you know, I think we, we deepen in. You know, what's a wise response in any given situation? It's really difficult to say, you know, in advance or hypothetically. And uh, as we've mentioned, I think sometimes what a lot of this practice is about, certainly a sense of wisdom is about, is certain truths that we all sort of know. They begin to sink deeper into us, or they begin to feel more real, or they significance is, shines, shines forth and, uh, you know, in one of the groups today, somebody was talking about a real sense of gratitude and feeling so grateful for Gaia House, for the building, for the teachings, for friends, for family and when we do that, sometimes it's rather lovely games to do actually, you play the gratitude game and you can see what it, what it leads to, this sort of virtuous circle of thinking, wow, all these things. But it was a sense that, that perhaps by being on retreat, by the sitting, the stillness, being in the silence, that that gratitude was really welling up from somewhere, in a real kind of depth of gratitude, where at other times certain things that might be platitudes, you know, <coughs> be grateful, um, actually become really lived truth, you know, something comes alive. And so we may even say, I don't know if it's… could perhaps suggest that there aren't really such a thing as wise words in the abstract. You know? and even the words that might contain great wisdom, said at the wrong time, in the wrong way, to the wrong person, might you know really not be what helps. So there's something immediate and very present about this sense of wisdom. So again I wanted to just reflect a, on perhaps a few aspects of wisdom uh, and certainly no uh, wish to see this as some kind of exhausted, li- exhaustive list or somehow sums up the whole thing but just a few reflections again that may reverberate with your own experience and your own seeing uh, both in, in your life and on this retreat. And so the first of these aspects was um, developing a wise understanding of This uh, habit we have of of craving, Uh, this pattern that we can notice in our mind to be drawn into something, to long for something, to thirst for something that we feel is going to really deliver something significant, something lasting, some satisfaction, some, some kind of completion. And we can see this through desires for pleasant sights or sounds, tastes and smells. So many areas of our life. It might be food, material possessions, having the right kind of body, the right clothes, the right relationships. And it's what we call the if-only mentality. If only, if only I had this, then everything would be okay. Yeah? If only. So we could, you know, perhaps go through some of those examples I mentioned with food. I mean, this may or may not have arisen for you on retreat. We all have quite different relationships to food. But have you noticed the feeling of ah, you know, Wednesday will be the time I can choose what food to have? You know, you may or may not have liked the food here, but you basically, you know, you don't choose it. I mean, there's a fair amount of things you can choose from, but it's not like being outside in the twenty-four hour seven day a week supermarket lifestyle that we have, we can have anything you want, now something's a little bit restricted. So do you find your mind moving towards those things? If only I could have. You know, what's happening in that moment is perhaps that the significance of certain tastes that are around for a while, they have a certain intensity, it becomes kind of overblown and we're looking to the food to, to give us something that when we pay attention it really can't do you know when you and this is why mindful eating is a very uh, interesting practice because you can see uh, you know there's this often a burst of flavor burst of intensity and can quite quickly kind of fade as we chew and then the the impulse immediately to have some more um, and it's again, it's a lovely practice to do with the things if you do find yourself you know that that may be a pattern for you chocolate or coffee or and I'm not sure if it's still the case but I think, and did I noticed the coffee was absent. A little sign up saying it's been ordered. So again, you know, for some of us, probably didn't, didn't even notice that. Other people might be, ah, oh, when they're going to sort that out. <laughs> I shall be writing in, you know. But again, it's, it's 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 how much has been been invested in that, and it's interesting to see how we can do that. You know, perhaps with material possessions and. Now, I may be, be generalising, but it, it's probably true that the kind of people who self-select to choose to come on this kind of retreat, we probably don't think of ourselves as sort of materialistic in a particularly uh, kind of obvious or crude sense. But we can still see that you can see there's, this pull towards things. It's wanting this. Oh, you know, you can sort of feel this heart's longing for for, for stuff, or the right kind of body, again, you know, different people have this to different extents. I'm, um, you know, I've got sort of half a foot. Half a foot, is that right? I don't know if that's <laughs> quite the phrase I meant. Um, in the in the yoga world these days, um, I'm actually, uh, officially anyway, I'm a trained yoga teacher. Please don't ask me to lead any yoga. I uh, know there's many other people here who be able to do that much more skillfully. Um, but I have, a, I have a foot in this world, so I, I often read these yoga magazines and, and all of the things around that. And certainly the presentation of yoga in, in uh, today's society, it's such an interesting mix of these you know, kind of spiritual teachings which may be about really releasing identification with the body, bringing the awareness into the body, cultivating that different relationship where we can breathe in, let go, be with our body as it is. But also some, you know, sometimes subtle or not so subtle messages about having this fantastic body there <laughs> that yoga is going to give us. You know, and, uh, I saw a, an article recently about I think it was about naked yoga and saying how some people find this very freeing because it sort of frees them from this kind of feeling around the body. But uh, you know, I sort of smiled that it was it was illustrated. I have to say, very tastefully shot, but illustrated with this sort of you know. Particularly, sort of attractive person with this kind of very fit body, demonstrating that. And I I just wonder if sometimes, you know, in in our life, it's a little bit like that—that we we might be, to some extent, you can feel, ah, you know. But we find ourselves looking in the mirror, and just, you know, what's that relationship with that person that we see in the mirror? You know, how do we see that? It's really neutral, yeah, really neutral. Um, there's a nice uh, practice you can do around that sometimes. It's, it's a nice thing to do just to, to look at the mirror and smile at yourself in the mirror. And maybe for some time, you know, maybe five, ten minutes, just to do that and see and notice. Yeah. And just kind of offering ourselves that, that well wishing. Beyond the sense of how our body should look or is supposed to look, and of course, I mean another area where we can really feel uh, this very strongly is in you know in the relationship life. Um, uh, you know, perhaps particularly, I'm not sure if it's only, but perhaps particularly at the beginning of relationships when people you know, have that feeling of a, a real you know thoughts are full of this person. Uh, and I certainly remember having one of these experiences, <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was a particular, you know, really just going round and round and round and round, and I, it, I did, it really did make me smile. I thought, wow, you know what's going on here, you know, and so I just kind of had to look at it, and I thought either there, there's two, tr- there's two things that could be true here. Either my ultimate well-being and peace depends upon being with this person, yeah, or there's some kind of slightly deluded mind state around here. <laughs> you know, and then we can begin to look at it and we can begin to see that. But it, you know, it's really tough, isn't it, when it's there, when we're right in the middle of it, just how strong it can be. And what all of these things do, whether it's food or material possessions or a body image or another person, there's always a sense of, of being a hostage, yeah, it's like we're a hostage to conditions, we're a hostage to circumstance. And the worldview is, if that particular thing is present, great. Everything is okay with the world. But if it's absent, you know, there's a problem. There's a problem. So that's where I like this practice of this, this basic okayness that I've been mentioning, or this idea that it's already here. You know, maybe. We'll we're seeking is already here can really begin to, to lessen that but again I, I don't think this is a, a question of trying to, to stop these patterns, right okay I'm, I'm never going to do this again, <laughs> but what we're doing and I think this is the wisdom of it is we begin to see, we begin to see the pattern and again as people described in, the, in some of the groups and the relationship ship to it can become somewhat distant uh, sorry different, it can become a little bit funny or amusing you know, what our minds are doing and we're not so much in there but actually, wow, look at this all this stuff going on, these patterns and it is tough, I think it is tough for us because we're also in a situation where we're um, exposed to uh, a lot of messages, a lot of advertising That is, of course very deliberately Designed to make us think that our well being is dependent on the next phone, the latest phone, so many megapixels, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. You know. And so we can, we can feel that. So one of the, I mean, as we've been rejoicing in the merits of Gaia House over this time, but again, one of the lovely things is actually it's, it's a relatively rare experience to be, to be free of those messages. You know, I'm not yet sponsored by. So, inside, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so it's nice, it's peaceful, it's cooling, it's calming. You know, there's a, there's a and I really mean this in the nicest possible sense, that there's a neutrality about this room, about the, the ceiling, the carpet, the walls. It's, it's, it's not exciting, yeah? it's not trying to draw us into something. Ah, let's absorb into that, let's get that and that it's conducive to a certain peace. So, you know, again, this craving, of course, begins to show up and retreat in many ways. It may be craving for the sound of the bell. We can see that. Um, and one nice, again, just a, a, something I've I heard about this that's quite nice. If you do find yourself doing that, you say, well, when's he going to ring this bell? i yeah. What you might explore is kind of silently, if I, I don't know if that makes sense, but ringing the bell in your own mind and then see what happens. Because it's interesting, sometimes we can be oh wait, when's he going to ring the bell, when's he gonna, oh, and then the bell goes and then you go, ah, oh. and you may, you may not actually have moved or done a lot, but there was some holding, like, waiting, waiting, waiting. So actually, you know, just give it a try, explore. Imaginatively ring the bell. Okay, so I'm going to stop meditating now. Ding, ding, the bell's going. Ah, oh, okay. You know, I'm not meditating here. I'm just sitting here with my breath and my body. And it's, yeah, it's not so different. Another thing that happens on retreat is we, we begin to crave the end. Um, you may uh, notice that, and it comes up so how many... Days, how many hours, whatever, towards the end. And one thing I like to do when I notice that um, arising in my mind is to sort of contemplate the insubstantiality of the end. Yeah, I mean, what exactly is the end of the retreat? You know, which moment is it that I'm really looking forward to? to you know, is it? Um, I don't know. Say perhaps talking at the end of the retreat, when you get a chance to do that? Or is it maybe being in a taxi, getting a lift? Is it standing at Newton Abbott train station? You know, I've, I've done that many times, and you know, we can be mindful, it can be okay, but it's not like, wow, Newton Abbott train station. You know? Or maybe popping into the cafe in Newton Abbott train station, I don't know, all these things. You know, then being on the train, and so actually, this thing that we might think, and and this is an interesting thing to notice. When what craving tends to do, it's very much associated with a particular perception that fixes something, as having some intrinsic quality to it. So contemplating the the insubstantiality of the thing to which we, you know, feel that around is is very useful. Yeah. So what's, at the end of the retreat. In in a way, is simply more moments moments of pleasure, moments of pain, moments we want things, moments, you know, we get what we want, moments we don't get what we want. And there isn't this solid thing to look forward to and then for, then we can be open to be on the retreat and see in a, in a way it's not so different. Yeah. And that contemplation of kind of both aspects of something again is very helpful with that. You know, perhaps briefly to return to the relationships. You know, if we find ourselves on our own, we're single, and then the craving may be more towards, you know, if only I was with someone. And we can reflect on both the joys and sorrows of being in relationship. You know, certainly, of course, full of joys and companionship and understanding. But you know, also, as we know. <laughs> arguments, misunderstandings, uh, the trials and tribulations of that. And so too vice versa, maybe we're in a relationship where something. like, oh, wouldn't it be so wonderful to have the freedom to do what I want? Nobody to answer to. And then we can think, yeah, okay, that might, might be a certain truth in that, and then, the, you know, times of isolation or loneliness or whatever around that. So I think this is also uh, helpful to see that every condition, has these different aspects to it you know, the kind of the pleasant, the unpleasant It begins to release the craving again, being on retreat, you know sometimes it's nice to be off retreat it's different, we're not sitting, walking can do what we want a bit more eat what we want there's something to look forward to there but then if you think about it there must have been something about not being on retreat that made being on retreat look really attractive <laughs> that must have been the idea when you, you booked before me, didn't it? you know and of course it's both, and the loveliness of being here we're free from so many responsibilities and demands and you know all the stuff that's around, and yet too, of course, we you know notice it has its tough aspects too. So we can begin to, to more and more make peace with, uh, with the whole thing. We can also have. Um, a kind of craving that's famously called spiritual materialism there's a wonderful book by um, Trungpa Rinpoche called Spiritual Materialism or Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism where we basically bring exactly the same uh, patterns that we have in the rest of our lives we bring them into a spiritual practice so then we begin to chase perhaps certain states of mind or certain experiences so again, that's something we can do on retreat. We can think, you know, either we've had a certain experience or we imagine a certain experience where the thoughts are very, very, uh, you know, really died down or perhaps no thought or the, there's this lovely energy in the body. But again, we can begin to relate to any experience in that same way. Oh, I want it. I want it back. I want to make a home in some kind of experience. But again, it's, it's a very similar pattern, there's uh, this feeling of being hostage. So sometimes, you know, and again, the more we meditate, different experiences come and go. But the more we think, if only, it's only okay if I'm having that kind of experience, then we're less able to connect with all of the different things that, that arise and pass in our, our meditations. Another aspect of spiritual materialism is trying to create a new kind of identity. You know, trying to create and sustain this identity as a spiritual person. And uh, you know, wear the right clothes, talk the right language. You know, it's a kind of new sort of self that we can uh, coalesce around or, or uh, start to grasp. But again, we can reflect, part of the wise understanding is that this thing of any identity that we cling to can become a place of struggle or suffering. It becomes something that we feel we need to maintain, it's a persona. Um, yeah, Some kind of image of ourselves that we then need to present to the world and defend to the world and as if we're relying on the maintenance of that image to make us feel okay. And then there's a certain fragility to it. You know, so if we attach to this idea of being a spiritual person, then what happens when somebody sees us being irritable with their next-door neighbour or that moment when that spiritual mask has kind of slipped? Yeah. And I certainly used to have this sometimes around... Uh, uh, Spoken about this a few times, but around eating chips, you know, if if one of you after the retreat saw me eating some chips, oh no, who's this guy? I thought he was, you know, about wisdom and compassion, and really he's he's into chips. (laughs) The whole sort of faith collapse. But again, you can see how it it, it builds up that feeling of, oh, now I'm supposed to do this, and I've got to just drink the herbal teas, and uh, it, it, it can become a bit heavy. If we, if we try and carry that as, a, as an identity. So, um, another aspect of wise understanding is really the opposite of this, this craving, this wanting, if only, if only. And this is the, the more aversive tendency, which we could see really as the other side of the coin, the, the pushing away, the don't want. You know, if only this wasn't here, if only this wasn't present then everything would be okay so we can see these are really very parallel um, and we can be aversive to, as we've been uh, exploring and discussing to particular things that arise in our own experience to certain emotions, to certain, certain thoughts, certain patterns in our own experience so I thought I'd read something from um, Ajahn uh, Sumedho about this which I find rather lovely He says, I've learned to be kind to things I don't like in myself. I have a character that tends to get very jealous. A great problem in my life was jealousy and indignation. When I first became a monk, I used to have this terrible problem because I hated this condition of jealousy. And I tried desperately to get rid of it. Whenever that feeling would arise in my mind, I'd just repress it. I'd practice trying to feel happiness for the person whom I was jealous of. I'd grit my teeth and say, I'm really happy for you, <laughs> very happy <indeed. laughs> But I'd still feel this terrible pain in my chest and a real aversion to the state of jealousy, hoping that no one else knew. Again, this is this kind of when the spiritual materialism comes in, you know, I'm a, I'm a monk now. You know, I shouldn't be feeling jealousy. It's got to suppress it, keep it a secret. I'd stooped to great measures to try to cover it up. I'd say, aren't you happy for so-and-so? Isn't it wonderful? Trying to get everyone to believe there was no jealousy. Through the years, I tried to stop it, repress it, annihilate it, but I found that it was getting worse. It was getting so bad, I couldn't keep it down in any way, and it was becoming obvious to everyone, and it was humiliating. Then I reflected on it. I said, you're obviously doing something wrong. You've tried everything to get rid of it, but it doesn't go away through all your efforts. Then I realized that the problem wasn't really with jealousy. The real problem was with the aversion to the jealousy. That was the real problem. So then when I started feeling jealous, I'd say, oh yes, jealousy again, welcome, welcome. And I'd deliberately be jealous. I'd think, I'm jealous because I'm afraid that person is better than I am. I'd bring it up into full consciousness. I'd listen to it, really watch it and befriend it. Rather than saying, oh, here it comes again, I've got to get rid of it. I'd say, jealousy, my old pal. And I learned a lot from jealousy. It's like a warning sign, something that comes up and warns you. Yeah. So for me, um, this is very heartening. I don't know how much you, you know about um, Ajahn Samedo, but a very kind of respected, uh, very senior monk in the Thai forest tradition. Um, and you know, for me, there's something so sort of humanizing about that. And particularly with monks and nuns, we may have this idea that they're completely different to the rest of us. And you look at them and they are. Oh, I bet they never feel jealous or have pains in the knee or kind of, dreams about leaving the monastery and all things like that but actually when you talk to them all this <laughs> stuff's around and I, I love that feeling of his practice as he's um, yeah, and describing what we may call the development of his practice it's not that there, there was this thing called jealousy and he had the strategy to annihilate it get rid of it and he kept trying and after a few years he worked it out that's how I get rid of it you know, now I'm this heroic monk that's overcome jealousy it doesn't sound like it. it's bringing this, realizing this, it's this pushing away, this I don't want certain conditions of the mind, of, I just don't want that. And he came to realize, of course, it's, do it, it's that movement that is feeding, sustaining, and making all of those things a problem. Uh, and without that, it's simply a condition of the mind that comes and goes, I say, here's jealousy again. Comes, it's around for a bit. Allow it to be there, it's welcoming, breathing with. And it can just pass and fade in its own time. So I think this is a, a really helpful thing to do. To to notice that and again when that can come up in, in a retreat and we may not use words like aversion, or will. It might be a sense of being frustrated with something, feeling fed up with something, feeling impatient. And again, we can want that, can't we? Again, it's almost inevitable, this will be around, that we come on retreat and we're wanting a particular experience and we've got something else, we've got the wandering mind, the busy mind, and then there's this this pushing away. So again, we can really learn from, from what he says there. So rather than focusing on What's the magic strategy to stop this wandering mind? But can we turn towards the aversion towards it? Notice that, be with that, befriend that, soften around that, and then see what arises from there. And again, then we can reflect on this pattern of of mind, this tendency to, to push away, to be aversive. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but it certainly happened in, in my experience and when you, see, when you see it happening it's really quite funny. <coughs> but I've had this experience of, of being uh, aversive, being angry uh, with what I imagined someone might say. <laughs> it's quite funny, so sometimes we can feel aversive to something that's actually, actually happened. Somebody says something and oh, I don't like that and there's aversion. Sometimes I notice I'm walking along and then I've had this imagination I'm going to have this experience, this meeting or something, and somebody's going to say that to me, and I won't like that. And then I'm going to say, you know, you shouldn't have said that, and then I'm going to say, right, and this is why you shouldn't have said that, and you've always done it, and you know, the whole kind of self-righteous thing goes on, and I'm just away in all of that. And then, you know, hopefully through, I don't know, some kind of gift of the gods, whatever you want to call it, there's just this little moment of thinking, hang on, what's going on here? And you can trace it back. And there's this state of mind that's born from something, you know, just a thought that arose. They might say that. And we can see how things build around it. Yeah. Sometimes people talk about the half-smile of the Buddha. You know, many Buddha statues, the Buddha has this half-smile. Right? I find that Interesting. You know this this kind of inward turning towards this ah, you know it's, it's a sort of amusement, the lightness around patterns in the heart and mind. so we can we can sort of turn towards these patterns of aversion in that way. And when it's present and the mindfulness isn't there, so you see the two different things. it makes such a difference between um, I'm, you know, there's there's some mindfulness of an aversive mind state, or when the mindfulness isn't there, it simply colours the way that we see the world. You can see the difference. So um, when we, uh, when the whole mind state is is, is coloured by that, it's just like we're just tuned into seeing what's wrong with this. What's wrong with this person? What's wrong with this situation? What's unacceptable? We're just tuned in to seeing the world in that way. And when it's really strong, if somebody says, oh, you know, maybe there's a, a state of mind here, maybe something's shaping us, you say, no, definitely not. This is how it is. You know, and you can see it, and particularly when we feel that really quite a lot of self righteousness towards a particular person, we can feel that. It's like they, our perception of them is boiled down to the things that they've done wrong as if that's all of them yeah. so again this, this movement of from believing what those states of mind tell us to being able to step back and reflect on it as a state of mind and again you can play with it I, I sometimes like to, to explore this feeling what's it like to, to see the world through an aversive filter and so when we can see that's happening, when we kind of deliberately do that, we can recognise it more easily when it's around. So we can play, I don't know what it would be if I started to think, you know, what's to so look at things through an aversive state of mind and I suddenly notice that radiator. And I might think, oh, that's a, that's a bit old fashioned, isn't it? Is that, is that the kind of radiator that I would want? Things like that. Maybe they should have something sort of more up to date. Oh look at the the pipe next to it, it's actually got a a bend in it, it doesn't go down quite as smoothly and it doesn't match the walls. And now I'm looking at the skirting board, it's not quite as smooth as I thought it might be, it looks a bit knobbly. Ah, you know, maybe Gaia house isn't quite what it should be. And, And then these cushions, you know, I've just noticed it now, but the cushions don't match, some are burgundy, some are black, some are blue. They're not all the same height, you know what's going on? You can see how you can. Honestly, it's it's great fun to play with, (laughs) as long as you know you're playing. And then you think, well, this is how it's built up. You know, this is how it's built up. In the same way, with the gratitude thing becomes a kind of game. And then, in doing that, we can see how our states of mind are kind of created. So then, you know, perhaps at less fortunate times when we're not thinking ah, oh, let's explore this, and we just realise, we're just really angry with the shape of the pipe from the, <laughs> the radiator, we're more likely to think, "Oh, hang on, this, this is a creation, this is a state of mind. Uh, this is what we call mindful, mindfulness of, of mind states. And we can have this assumption that we just receive the world as it is and we're seeing the world as it is. But with practice we see that there's this filter being filtered through a mind state of wanting, of not wanting, of aversion of fear and we can begin to become more conscious of those filters and then we believe our thoughts uh, less and less, we're not so drawn into them or we can be aware of our emotions without being so governed by them yeah. and there's a great freedom of that being mindful of thought, mindful of feeling, mindful of emotion mindful of the state of mind Without having to believe it. Hmm. Again, you can reflect how how long have we been here now? <laughs> forty-eight hours. You know, it's it's nice just to think back. How many different mind states have visited you in the forty-eight hours? You know, and did. Any of those contain the complete and the final truth about yourself, Gaia House, meditation practice, your fellow practitioners, your life outside, whatever it was. And we can begin to see you know, that these states of mind come and go, come and go. And I think this is a real key aspect of this wise understanding, this wisdom, to, to be able to see, to reflect and to, to make space. And I think it's that space that then leads to to a more compassionate way uh, of being in the world. So just a a couple of uh, reflections on, on being with aversion. If we do notice that aversion is present, it's very helpful to tune into the painfulness of it, the painful nature of aversion, and the way that it makes us feel separate. That sense of division, isolation, and separation that it it breeds. And just to notice that. Again, it's not about judging ourselves or judging judging that, but just noticing that it has that effect. Um, Yeah, and what that feels like. And Pema Chodron has a particularly, uh, quite, a sort of, uh, quite a vibrant way of speaking about this. She says, fueling our own hatred is like eating rat poison and expecting the rat to die. <laughs> it's quite strong, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, eating rat poison, expecting the rat to die. But somehow that, you know, it's a, uh, wow, quite a powerful, powerful image. But there can be this thing that, that makes us hold on to aversion, hold on to anger. Can be this thing, yeah, but that person deserves it. They deserve my anger. They deserve my contempt. They deserve this. So oh, I can't let it go. But again, just seeing that actually, that, that holding on ourselves is we're in that moment, that separation, that the suffering is here in this being. And that person may be miles away. Experiencing something very different. <laughs> yeah. And of course, this is, this is not at all to condone, ignore, or minimize harmful behavior. And you know, we know how widespread that is in, in the world. And so it's not to cut that off or deny that or to sort of sweep it under the carpet or a sort of pink fluffy clouds view of life. You know, everybody's lovely, everything's lovely. Isn't the world a nice place? It's just not real. But we can feel, we can feel, well, hang on, what in the middle of this world with its joys and sorrows, you know, what? how much does holding on to this contribute to the healing of the world? Uh, how much does it Harden the division. I can begin to really feel that. And this uh, lovely reflection of the Buddha: hatred never ceases through hatred, but through love alone does hatred cease. This is a an eternal law. A lovely uh, reflection. Hatred never ceases through hatred. And we can feel that in our own life, in our own relationship with ourselves as Anjan Sumedho is describing, the the jealousy wasn't healed through hating the jealousy, getting rid of it, annihilating it. It was healed through befriending, making space, being with. And again, in our relationships with others, The world more widely, we can see that pattern playing itself out again and again and again. And you know, as we'll explore tomorrow, perhaps love and compassion sometimes have a a, a forceful expression. They don't mean, it doesn't mean a passivity. You know, love and compassion could be quite strong in standing up to sources of suffering, but it's not adding more, it's not, not, not adding more hatred never ceases through hatred but through love alone does hatred cease so a very wise reflection to bring to mind again and again so let's uh, sit quietly for a minute or two